Welcome to this GemTrain.org presentation, where you will be able to enjoy some wonderful free content that we sincerely hope will help you overcome the challenges of autism. Some content from this presentation is not included here, but the entire presentation is available on our website, GemTrain.org. So, my name is Bob Billman. I'm the founder and director of the National Association for Child Development. I've been working with autism in the field for 50 years. Uh, I started off my career as a special education teacher and as such developed some new methodologies and techniques and at the age of 23 uh, became the clinical director of one of the largest United Cerebral Palsy organizations in the country. And as such, I was in charge of the academic program for a special school for about 200 kids, our clinical programs, our therapy programs, all 23. Uh, developed some model programs for the federal government back then. Uh, developed a lot of initial insights into learning, education, and autism. I was part of the team that first understood and developed techniques to address sensory issues. Uh, we had what's called the Delicato Doman Autistic Unit, which I think we started in 1972. And if you will, that really was the beginning of understanding that the problems related to autism were sensory based. Prior to that, it was psychiatric. You know, and if you will, back at that time, autism as a term was just starting to be used. We're still back in the time of infantile schizophrenia. So it was back there at the foundation of that. Uh, in the early 70s, I was working, developing programs, uh, worked in Israel, worked in Spain, designing programs for kids. Uh, went to Spain in the middle 70s to develop model programs after Franco had died and they were starting to develop programs in Spain. At the same time, I was traveling back to the States and had different organizations I was working with designing their programs. Came back to the States and uh, in 1979 formed the National Academy for Child Development, which then became the National Association for Child Development. We very quickly had chapters around the country. Back at that time, uh, I was traveling around the country doing six-hour seminars. And the seminars were primarily to discuss child development and neuroplasticity. And if you will, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, neuroplasticity was essentially unknown. You know, truth of the matter is, most people don't understand neuroplasticity today. And it was a, a unique educational experience. I would do these seminars for large groups of people, parents, therapists, educators, physicians, psychologists. And essentially what I was doing is throwing myself out there uh, to be attacked. All right, you know, this is what I think, this is what I know, and listen to me and tell me what you think. And it was a very educational, interesting experience doing this around the country. Uh, 
one of the really fun parts of it was occasionally I'd have some professional who would speak up and kind of attack me. <clears throat> and it's almost like I should have planted them there because every time that happened, all the parents in the audience would attack them. You know, because essentially what they were saying back then is stay out of this because I was promoting parents. Parents need to be involved. Parents need to be directing what's happening with their children. And parents really need, if we're gonna be successful, to be very, very active participants. And the professionals were pretty much saying, you know, stay out of this, parents. It's our job as educators, it's our job as professionals to do this. And the parents would attack that. Uh, they'd also be saying that, and again, not understanding what neuroplasticity was, that you really can't produce significant changes. You know, I actually went to graduate school in special education and uh, had a very interesting experience because essentially I was anti everything they were promoting. Essentially what it was back then, which is pretty much what it is now, is the role of special education is to do a diagnostic, determine labels, and then categorize, and then provide an appropriate education based on the perspective of potential. And their perspective of potential was a whole lot different than my perspective of potential. Because while I was in graduate school, I was educating kids who supposedly were not educable. All right. So I didn't buy into that. And they, I could talk neuroplasticity, and they had not a clue what I was talking about. And if you don't understand neuroplasticity, you don't understand potential. Neuroplasticity is that which is, produces all human development. If you will, the, <clears throat> your brain runs the show. Your brain is what makes everything happen. How we use our brain and the input our brains receive determine that development. Specifically what happens as we receive specific input with sufficient frequency, intensity, and duration. We actually stimulate neurons, grow connections between neurons, and produce neural networks that actually change the brain, develop the brain. My first experiences of that were with brain-injured kids, where you had whole areas of the brain destroyed, and essentially the, the perspective was, well, that function is gone. All right, that kid can develop vision. That area of his brain is gone. And we would see, with proper stimulation and input, triggering neuroplasticity, we would get other areas of the brain to pick up that function. And so, if you will, learning is, education is, development is a direct reflection of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is that which changes the brain, which produces function. If it were not for neuroplasticity, there would be no development. You know, we, we sadly have this perception that development occurs because we get older. Right. That is absolutely not so. Development occurs because the brain is stimulated. You know, for example, if I have a severely brain-injured child with visual problems, auditory problems, tactile problems, 
that are so severe that the brain is not receiving any decent input. That child does not develop. Does not develop. Year after year, they get older, older, older. But if we do not provide the brain with input and stimulate that brain, nothing develops. And in fact, not only does nothing develop, physiologically the child declines. So all development is a reflection of neuroplasticity. And if we really understand neuroplasticity, it changes how we view everything from potential to what defines an opportunity, to what is stimulation. It changes the whole perspective, and it's so sad that neuroplasticity, which has been known since the 1800s, is not being understood, not being utilized, not being applied by the, by the educational systems, by the professionals working with all these kids with all these needs. Understanding neuroplasticity essentially says there are no limits because the potential of the brain to change and develop is always there. And it's waiting for us to provide the right stimulation, the right opportunities to make it happen. So when we're looking at autism and seeing the correlation and significance of neuroplasticity, you know, again, we're, we're talking about what needs to happen to normalize the function in a child with a neurodevelopmental problem. And it's important to understand autism, those on the spectrum have a neurodevelopmental issue. And the issue exists because something or some things have interfered with that development. Those things that interfere with the development are generally sensory issues. You know, we learn through our senses. So if we have problems with processing sensory information, our brain, rather than getting quality input, is getting to some degree garbage input. And that affects how that brain develops because of the neuroplasticity. How you perceive, all right, what you process, determines how that brain develops. So in terms of kids on the spectrum, normalizing the sensory function is kind of issue number one, because we have to get the brain good input. So once we start normalizing the sensory function, then we can say, okay, now we can really run with this child, and we have to develop all the pieces that produce the cognition and the global development that we're trying to achieve. But the foundation is understanding with neuroplasticity, there are no limits. And it's important to perceive that, that these kids are not their labels. They're not limited by historic failure relative to those with similar labels. That they're only limited by the opportunities we provide. You know, back in the early 70s, when we really understood that the foundation of the problem was sensory dysfunction. Our first job, became identifying what that sensory dysfunction was. And that was, that was a long process. It was decades, and I'm still understanding more and learning more relative to that. But the sensory function in most of the kids on the spectrum uh, involves, to some degree, all the senses. Generally, the bigger issues are auditory and visual. And if you will, they're the biggest issues because that's primarily how we learn. All right. And with the visual issues, it took, it took a long time for me to, to, to really understand what was happening. 
we looked at, if you will, the sensory play, and we looked at the lack of function to diagnose where the sensory dysfunction was and what the sensory dysfunction was. Now, if you will, you know, I remember having an aha moment. I was doing an evaluation on a child and going through information, asking the mom information. And, you know, asked her, you know, does Johnny watch TV? And she said, no, he won't even look at the TV. And, you know, I had, I had been involved with vision for a long time up to that point, trying to understand this. And Johnny won't watch TV. You know, that's one of the first things little kids do. They'll attend to a TV. And, and looking at that, understand, okay, looking at TV, you only see TV with your central vision, your macular vision. And if Johnny's not watching TV, you know, he's not dissimilar from the brain injury kids I see, you know, who have severe visual impairment and literally can't see. All right, so he doesn't have central vision. And then it became more and more obvious that all the stimming was stimulating his peripheral vision. Spinning stimulates peripheral vision. Shaking things stimulates peripheral vision. Moving his head stimulated peripheral vision. And all day long, Johnny was strengthening his peripheral vision and delaying the development of his central vision. So shockingly, one of the best therapeutic tools I have for developing central vision is TV. All right. And if you think about it, there's no stronger central macular stimuli than a TV. You know, imagine, you know, your TV at home and it's on this big wall unit and you've got books and you've got things all over the place, right? With that TV off, your brain looks at that wall and it sees all the books and the knickknacks and all this stuff. Turn that TV on, the rest of it disappears because your brain is using that central vision, ignoring the peripheral, all right? And if you will, you learn with your central vision. The peripheral vision keeps you from denting the fender on your car, walking into a door jam, all right? But essentially, you learn with your central vision and kids on the spectrum almost universally have degrees of issues with their central vision. Of paramount importance when we're working with a child on the spectrum is understanding that we have to work with a whole child. And if you will, one of the things that has really slowed down development in the field is we have people working with pieces of a child. And each person who's working with a piece is looking at that piece pretty much in isolation. They're establishing priorities based on their piece. And if you will, don't get a chance to see the big picture. The only way we will work with, with a child, with a family, is with the whole child. We want to know everything about that child. You know, we're, we're, we're concerned about their diet and their nutrition. What are they eating? We're concerned about their sleep concerned about where they sleep. We're concerned about the position they're sleeping in. We're concerned about all of their sensory functions. We examine all the sensory functions. We're, we're looking at what they interact with, what they will play with. I mean, a simple piece of information, like leave Johnny alone for three minutes, what's Johnny gonna do? Gives you a lot of insights into Johnny, right? So we wanna know how they interact, what they do when they're independent. We want to know how they do when they're interacting with different people. Uh, 
where we're going to look at their cognitive function in terms of their sequential processing, auditory and visual processing, that tells us kind of global development where they are, which gives us a roadmap in terms of how we how we essentially proceed. You know, the child's chronological age is really irrelevant. It's their neurodevelopmental age that tells us where we are and where we need to go. You know, I see so many kids getting totally inappropriate therapies because they're paying attention to their chronological age, not their neurological developmental age. You know, for example, you have OTs trying to teach kids to write who neurodevelopmentally are two years old. You know, please. <laughs> you know, the, the kid doesn't know how to put his socks on. <laughs> and you're, you're trying to teach him how to write, all right? He's neurodevelopmentally two. And that happens across the board. So it's, it's imperative that we look at every aspect of that child. Most of our assessment, if you will, comes from the parents. I mean, we, we observe things, we watch things, we get information, we get, you know, videos that the parents shoot at home so we can see the child in their natural circumstances. But if you will, the real expert on any child is that child's parent. They're the ones with, with most of the important real data. So for the most part, we are interviewing parents, we're pulling information out of parents, and we're educating the parents so they can look more critically at the kids and understand what's going on. But when we work, if you will, with a child, we're working with the family, all right? And our intervention is through the family. We don't work directly with the kids. We design programs, we train parents, we coach parents, we work with parents and parents end up being the ones who are supervising what's happening on a daily basis. I'm passionate about the parents' participation, uh, partially from a historic perspective. You know, early in my career, I was clinical director of the United Cerebral Palsy Organization, a special ed school. I actually got in trouble back then for educating trainable children and providing too much therapy. You know, I upset the system, all right? And I was producing too much change. And as well as I did, and you know, we, we really, relatively speaking, did fantastically well, I understood that I was not doing anywhere near well enough because I still couldn't provide enough of that one-on-one. -on -one. And understanding neuroplasticity, specific input, all right, you get away from one-on-one, -on -one, it becomes less and less and less and less specific. So realistically, parents are critical because they're in a position to provide a lot of the one-on-one. -on -one. And if they're not providing it, they're in a position to direct all those different pieces. But if we're really going to change a child who's on the spectrum, it's virtually impossible to do it without educated, actively involved parents. You know, one, one of the things we love to see is parents come in who have been struggling with their kids or frustrated with their kids. They don't understand the kids. They don't believe the people working with their kids understand their kids. They're not seeing change and they really don't have hope. 
And it's so cool as we start educating them. Okay, this is actually what's going on. This is what we need to change. This is what we need to fix. This is what specifically we need to provide. It's a whole different world for them. Once the parent gets the picture and really understands the pieces and understands neuroplasticity and understands eliminating the sensory issues, understands building cognition, they start getting the picture that we have of unlimited potential and they feel empowered. Say, hey, you know, with your help, we can do this. We can change this shot and I'm no longer going to be looking at my five-year-old wondering what in the world am I going to do when he's 18. I'm going to look at my five-year-old as a kid with unlimited potential and our job is to put the pieces together for him. You know, the, the reality for a parent of a child on the spectrum is that it's really scary, all right? Because most of them walk in, they really don't understand what's going on. <clears throat> the people they've talked to really don't understand what's going on. They're talking about doing these little tiny things to, you know, change a little piece, teach a little skill. And there's no vision for what can be. And if there's no vision for what there can be, there's no road to get there. You know, so our, you know, our job with parents is to educate them, give them the vision of what can be, and then give them all the specific, very specific tools to get there and then coach them all the way as they proceed on the, on the road. All right, but it's, you know, vision, the tools you need to put it together, the support, the coaching, and then you've got potential and you can, parents can see their kids as well. Johnny can someday do this. One of, one of the advantages we have at NACD is we do work with the whole kids and we work with kids generally for a long time. You know, so we've had the opportunity to take kids who were about as severe on the spectrum as you can get and move them up. You know, I can recall one girl, <clears throat> she started severely autistic and the school and the professionals had labeled her as such. And we started working with her. And, you know, a year later they did an assessment. Oh, well, she's mildly autistic. Then a couple of years later, well, she's, she's kind of high on the spectrum. And then they started labeling, oh, well, she has a learning disability now. All right, ultimately she ended up in the gifted class. All right, because we kept changing her function and they kept fortunately changing the labels. All right, and ended up, you know, being an exceptional functioning individual. And, you know, fortunately we, we see many, many kids over many, many years develop and change, you know, which helps us have the vision. You know, if you haven't seen it, it's hard to get it, you know, but uh, we've seen so many children who were written off, you know, who were, were bound for, you know, a terrible, terrible life, end up functioning normally. We have, we have kids who were severely autistic, who now function so well and it changed so fast for them that they don't know they ever we're autistic, you know? So the parents says, we don't have to go through that history. You are who you are. 
okay? And the history is gone. So yeah, when we can when we can start with the kids early and really normalize the sensory function fast, push and accelerate the cognitive fun function, the kids can end up doing well pretty early on. And as they develop, if you will, that autism label goes away and never existed for them as they get older. It's just smart. One of the things we focus a lot on with virtually every child we see, whether it's a, a brain injury, cerebral palsy child, a child on the spectrum, a child with a learning problem, a quote unquote typical average child, is cognition. Uh, I've been working on building cognition for 50 years. And if you will, focusing on developing short-term memory, working memory. Matter of fact, we developed our first software to work on cognition, working memory. I think it was 1982 on a Commodore PET computer that had a cassette drive, okay? And uh, matter of fact, I was just talking this week to a mom of some of those kids from back in the 80s. You know, <clears throat> her, her kids are all incredibly successful. Matter of fact, you know, you hear, uh, you know, this kid has a potential to develop a cure for cancer one day. Well, actually, one of her daughters is doing that. All right. Um, because we started developing that cognitive function and accelerating that cognitive function. And we can do that with virtually any child. You know, the, if you will, the group of the population that is most hampered by their label is the normal average population, all right? Because the perception is, well, Johnny's kind of normal. He's kind of average. No, Johnny has the potential to be brilliant. We just have to put the pieces together. Again, if you understand neuroplasticity, every child virtually has that potential. And working with kids on the spectrum, if you will, the foundation is normalizing the sensory function, then stimulating that brain and building the cognition in balance so that they can function well and preferably very well. Ultimately, where we function is primarily a reflection of our cognitive function, our ability to think, all right, and our ability to take in information from our environment. When we look at cognition, kind of the, the fundamentals are that we have normal sensory functions, so we're getting decent information in the brain. But then we look at <clears throat> short-term memory. How many sequential pieces of information can you take in? And then we look at working memory as how many pieces can you take in, hold together, and manipulate. We can look at short-term memory specifically and draw a very good correlation between that and global function. For example, we can look at a typical child, and with the typical child, generally, if that child is, you know, from, you know, up to, to about 18 months old, most of those kids are gonna process a single piece of information. Our cognitive function is ultimately what determines where we function. Uh, if you will, cognitive function develops, 
develops through opportunity, it develops through stimulation. And if we look at normal development, we can see cognition grow and develop from little children. And as we get older and older, and sadly, as we get older, older, we see our cognition decline. All right. And whether we're talking about a two-year-old, a 20-year-old, or a 92-year-old, we actually can measure some very specific pieces to understand that cognition. And the big key pictures are short-term memory and working memory. Short-term memory is how many pieces of information you can take in visually and auditorily, sequentially. Working memory is how many pieces you can hold and manipulate. Right? Typical development. Uh, Children generally can process a single piece of information up to about 12 months, 18 months. And at that point in time, you could, you know, like they could follow a simple direction, you know, where's dad? And they could look at dad, or, right? Uh, but they can't say, where is dad and grandma? And have them look at dad and grandma. They can't quite process two pieces yet. When they're processing one piece, they also, language-wise, come out with some random individual words. When they can process two pieces, they started putting couplets together and actually chunking a little bit and start getting three words put together. And we see a behavior change. When the kids are one, little babies are pretty easy. You give them something, they're happy, you take away, they don't much care, all right, because they can't process any more than that. When they can process two pieces, we get into terrible twos. Terrible twos simply are a reflection of complexity of thought. Complexity thought is I want or don't want. There's no buts, there's no leaders. It's I want or don't want. And if that doesn't happen, you get a tantrum, right? We put together, start putting together three pieces. We have what I call lock and block behavior, which is the child's perception is, I'm gonna look at you and I'm gonna get a feel for this situation. Everything feels good and happy and non-threatening. I'll be happy to do that. If I feel threatened in any way, I feel anxious in any way, I feel this is important, I'm just gonna lock up on you, all right? It happens when kids sequence three. And it doesn't matter what age that occurs. You know, we can see kids on the spectrum who are 12 years old who are a two, you know, who are a three. And we can look at them behaviorally and pretty much tell where they are. And we can also see their language change as a, as a correlation of that. When they start getting to a point where they can sequence about five pieces, <clears throat> we're then getting into a point where we're developing the working memory complexity of thought, and we get more cognition and more understanding and we can deal with them better and rationalize. And as that comes together, we get into a nice stuff called executive function, all right, where kids can prioritize, they have the ability to say, gee, I really shouldn't do that and not do that. All of those pieces are direct reflections of cognition, which are short-term memory and working memory, right? And every child we work with, every adult we work with, we build that cognition. And there are no limits to it. All right, we're seeing absolutely brilliant children develop because we develop superior processing skills. You know, I had a mother call recently whose daughter we have developed really great processing with. She said, you know, Susie taught herself calculus today. <laughs> okay, <laughs> today. <clears throat> you know, we've got kids who started off having learning disabilities going to college at 14. 
right? Because they had learning disabilities because they had cognitive processing problems. We addressed the cognitive processing problems, developed typical and then superior processing, and we have superior functioning kids. You know, this is all relevant to kids on the spectrum because they have the same potential. It's the same pieces. It's the same dynamics that we have to put together. And if you will, nothing is typically done to address any of this. We hope you're enjoying this presentation. At any time, we invite you to go to gemtrain.org and gain the additional guidance from this presenter that can help you fully grow and flourish as you gain the skills and confidence to help those you love on the autism spectrum. The issue of why this isn't part of the overall educational system and part of what typically is done with any kid with special needs. I sadly, I think if I have to blame something, it's neuroscience. As I say, I've been working on developing these skills for almost 50 years. It's, we've been aware of it for a lot longer than that. All right, but it was only used to measure it. We would measure short-term memory. We would measure working memory. There wasn't a perception that you could change it. Well, having grown up understanding neuroplasticity, I assume you could change it. Matter of fact, in college, one of my first things I did was develop mine, all right, through memorizing lists of nonsense syllables. Right. By my second year in college, I didn't have to go to class anymore. Right, <laughs> felt really good processing skills, but uh, the neuroscience unfortunately works on little pieces. You know, we, we talk about whole kids. All right, neuroscience tends not to look at whole people; it tends to look at pieces of people and tip pieces of neurological function. And amazingly, it's only been in the last few years that neuroscience has actually acknowledged you can change working memory. You know, they'll say working memory is the new IQ. It's a better determination of, of function and ability and success than is your IQ. All right. But only recently have they just said, oh, you actually can change that. The only way that makes any sense to me is that they look at pieces and they looked at adults and didn't look at children. Because this develops in every child on the planet. And if it develops, it can change. And if it can change, you can do things to accelerate that change and accelerate that development. You know, it's, it's so sad. I mean, I mean, we've, we've done things like, you know, done programs in school. We take a class, 15 minutes a day to work on processing skills, cognition. And in four or five months, raise the academic function of every kid in the class. And could we get the school to then adopt it and use it with everybody? No. Because if you will, the foundation that we're working from in education and child development period is that you're born with certain innate potential and the system's job is to provide what's appropriate for you. They really don't have the perception that we can significantly, if not dramatically, change the individual. If you will, the individual is left out of the equation. 
A piece every parent or professional who works with kids on the spectrum needs, needs to understand is something simply called perseveration. And we can say perseveration is getting stuck. And to some degree, little children get stuck and perseverate. They have their favorite video, they have their favorite song, they have their favorite book. And that's fine, you know, if you're, you're two or three and you, you tend to move on, development moves on. One of the problems with kids with developmental problems is development becomes so slow that you get stuck. They get stuck in areas, and if you will, they almost get too good at things and don't move on as they should. Uh, one of the big concerns for kids on the spectrum is perseveration, getting stuck. And it's another form of addiction. You know, they can perseverate with a specific video. <clears throat> they can perseverate with a little segment on a video. They can perseverate with a piece of a song. All right, they can perseverate with a picture. All right, they can perseverate with roller coasters. All right, they get stuck on these things. And primarily what happens with these perseverations, they memorize whatever these things are. So they memorize this video. And there's a specific event or thing that happens in that video that really pushes their buttons. And because they've memorized the video, they anticipate what's going to happen. They get excited as that thing's about to happen. And when it happens, they get this endorphin rush and reinforces the addiction. So every time they watch it, the addiction becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. You know, you would think if after you watched a movie 5,000 times, you'd be bored with a movie. All right, but if you perceive our kids as getting stuck and perseverating on a piece and it being addictive to them, that explains why they're not bored with it. You know, when they start getting bored with it, we know we're getting better. All right, we're, we're heading in the right direction. But it, what happens with these things is not only are they having the problem when they're watching the video or the event, they internalize it. So Johnny's walking around watching that video Johnny's, you're trying to interact with Johnny and teach Johnny to read or put on his socks or do something. Johnny's watching that video. And as such, kids on the spectrum to varying degrees simply are not present because they keep running this stuff in their head. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of discussion now about early diagnosis of autism. How do we diagnose autism? Well, you know what? If you understand autism and you can't diagnose the kid within about 15 seconds, you don't know what you're doing, all right? Because you shouldn't have to do too much other than meet the child and try to make eye contact with the child and engage the child to find out to what degree they are not present and have these issues. You know, being present means you are aware and you're processing information. You're not running a scenario around in your head, all right? You're being present. We tend to think that what you've learned, somebody taught you. Well, a lot of what you learned, somebody taught you. But truth is, most of what you learned, you learned simply by being present and engaged with the world. And to the degree to which our kids on the spectrum are not present, not engaged with the world, they're not learning. And if we couple that with typically the minimal amount of one-on-one -on -one specific target intervention they get, it's no wonder their development is so slow.
So perseveration is dangerous, all right? It leads to kids not being present, not being aware, not learning from the world, not being engaged with the world. So we need to identify what they're perseverating with, eliminate it as much as we possibly can, and then provide them as much specific appropriate input and cause development to occur as it should. For one of the first instructions we give parents of kids on the spectrum is keep Johnny engaged for as many minutes out of the day as you possibly can with whatever will engage him. And generally, the greater the intensity of that, the better. For example, Johnny walking down a sidewalk is one level of engagement, okay? Johnny walking up a mountain trail where he has to look where he's gonna place every foot is a much higher level of engagement. Matter of fact, you can take kids on the spectrum and take them on a hike up in the mountain and you're gonna see a change in them probably for the next 24 hours, all right? Because you've engaged them, they've been present to a higher level for that period of time. One of the common problems with, with the kids on the spectrum is if they're not being engaged one-on-one, -on -one, what in the world happens to them, all right? And generally what happens to them if they're not engaged, they're stimming, DSAs, they're not present, they're off in la-la land, no learning's occurring, negative things are happening to their brain, all right? So how do we keep them engaged? One of the realities is teaching them to play appropriately is extremely difficult in most cases. All right, because they'll turn most any, you know, you're trying to teach them, oh, here's some Legos, let's play with Legos. All right, they're lining up the Legos. They're stacking the Legos. They're spinning the Legos. They're dropping the Legos off edges. All right, you give them most any toy and they're gonna find some way to turn that into a DSA. All right, or they're just gonna ignore it. What I try to teach most parents is the best way to keep most of our kids engaged is to teach them to do chores. Right? And the longer the chore takes, the better the chore is. For example, I, I had a mother come in not too long ago. She came in and she sat down. She sat up straight and proud. And she said, I've got the cleanest house in the neighborhood and I don't do any of it. Okay? Her 10-year-old autistic son does all the cleaning. Not only does he do all the cleaning, he makes his breakfast in the morning and he makes her breakfast in bed in the morning. Okay? It's <laughs> a proud mom. All right? And she got the point, <clears throat> all right, that as hard as it would be to teach her son to play independently, she could teach him to vacuum a floor. She could teach him to empty a dishwasher. Right? And all of those things kept him engaged. And then we, you know, that's not even to talk about all the benefits every child gets from learning to do chores and being responsible and developing self-esteem, you know. So, you know, we teach our parents how to teach their kids to do chores. We use a method called reverse chaining to teach them new things so that they're not becoming prompt dependent, which is a thing we avoid like the plague, which unfortunately many people who are working with their kids on the spectrum are doing things every day to make them more and more prompt dependent, which means they don't initiate. So it's, it's all important stuff. One of the realities, there's only so much time per day. There's only so much manpower. There's only so much financial resources. 
And if you will, for kids with significant issues, we need to optimize how we use all of those pieces that we have, which means our kids really don't have time to waste. All right, we need to be, you know, building those pieces that are going to change, really change their function. You know, building their cognitive function, normalizing their sensory channel, teaching them independence, educating them, uh, throwing some fun in there, terrific, all right? But mom running around all over creation, taking the kids to this and that and that and that, that are not addressing those real key issues, you know, is sadly, generally a waste of those limited resources. You know, one, one of our critical jobs when we're working with the family is to look at all the things they're doing and look at them critically and say, you know, based on the time and resources, where what, what is good? What is really gonna be helpful? Uh, you know, typically or often, most of those things we're, they're doing are not as targeted as they need to be. They're not really addressing the problems and honestly are a waste of time. Maybe nice people doing it, you know, it might be fun, but is it really taking the best advantage of what time and resources we have? No, often not. And the other component is when we work with a whole child, if we're working with a whole child and we know what's going in, we can look at what's coming out and determine what we need to change. We change the input based on the output. And if we don't know what all the input is, it makes it very difficult to realize and determine what needs to be changed. So part of working with the whole child is as much as possible working with all aspects of the child and directing what's always going in, because it isn't all positive. Having worked with kids on the spectrum for 50 years, one of my greater concerns are parents who, are, who really don't understand what autism is, who are out seeking the magic pill, the magic bullet, if you will, saying, Oh, here's this thing we can we can do. This is going to fix it. And sadly, there's a plethora of people out there willing to say they have the magic pill. All right, that gee, you know, it's it's this thing. And there's been so many of them I have watched over the decades, come and go and come and go and come and go and come and go. And you know, the the, the parents of kids on the spectrum are very susceptible to this. You know, they want to see things happen. And gee, if there's a simple thing we can do, and maybe that's going to do it, we're going, you know, and they spend so much time, so much money doing it. One of the other negative aspects of it is, I see our kids on the spectrum as being physiologically sensitive, and I think, if you will, physiological sensitivity is probably the foundation of where a lot of this comes from. And if we have kids who are physiologically sensitive, it means their diets are, in fact, really important. We want to give them as pristine a diet as we possibly can. But if you will, even a supplement is nothing more than a drug that hasn't been labeled as such. 
You know, as soon as they can draw a direct correlation between a supplement and it actually producing something, it then gets labeled as a drug. And throwing a bunch of drugs at the kids is not a good idea for any kid, let alone kids who are physiologically sensitive. You know, one of the, one of the things that I fought against for years was the Dan Protocol. Uh, you know, if you will, the foundation of that was Bernie Rimland. Bernie, Bernie was a friend. I knew Bernie well. And um, Bernie started off looking, you know, his area of interest was what could be done physiologically, what could be done in terms of supplementation to improve the lot of the kids. And it kind of got out of hand and ultimately ended up being the damn protocol. Uh, I had a hard time not spelling that a little bit differently uh, because I would see these kids who were doing well, they'd get go to a Dan doctor, they'd generally start off with doing detoxing. I'd see the kids crash and burn, all right? And then we'd start working back and they'd detox again and they'd crash and burn and they crash and burn and crash and burn and crash and burn and throw a mountain of supplements at them simultaneously. How in the world are you going to figure out what does what, if anything does anything? You know, but <clears throat> what's been interesting after all the years fighting the Dan doctors, they're gone. Not entirely gone. Some of them are now trying to, to interact with the Down syndrome population. But heavy-duty intervention in that area is not producing good results. In fact, it is, is producing bad results. But, you know, not saying that the individuals are such, but there's a lot of money to be made off of autistic kids. And there's a lot of people, sadly, who talk themselves into thinking, boy, this thing I'm doing that also happens to make me a lot of money is a good thing to do. It's, it's, it's sad. You know, ultimately, we have a, the channel we have to the child is the parent. And our process is an educational process for the parent. And then we work along with the parent to take them. Uh, families often arrive vested in some different approaches and different things. And when that exists, we, we need to discuss that and see to what degree it has application, to what degree it's valid, to what degree it complements, or to what degree it's superfluous or negative or harmful. So working with a whole child through the family, we really have to look at that whole big picture and do the best job we can collectively to put together the picture that's gonna work best for the child. Early in my career, we had large institutions housing thousands and tens and tens of thousands of kids and adults with developmental problems. Matter of fact, I, I was offered a job directing a large state institution in Pennsylvania in the early 70s. And walking into one of those institutions back then, if you will, every child in that institution was or had become autistic. So you had children that came in as Down syndrome. 
screams secondary to them becoming autistic. Brain injury becomes secondary to them becoming autistic. All right? Because what occurred in those institutions was a lack of stimulation, a lack of input. If we take any little child and leave them alone, they're going to engage in sensory play, all right? Until a child can process, you know, like what we call a three, it's difficult for them to have independent play. So what are they left with? Sensory stimulation. They rock, they suck their thumb, all right? They look at lights, all right? That's what they can do. They're going to take in whatever sensory input they can, all right? Now, fortunately, with a typical child, they move past that. The brain, they're getting more stimulation and the brain develops and they move past that. You leave a child in an environment where there isn't stimulation that's specific, targeted, developmental, that moves them on. They become more and more and more engaged with debilitating sensory addictive behaviors. And back then, the extremes of autism I saw were beyond virtually anything you see anywhere on the planet today. I mean, you, you, you know, <clears throat> you know, kids who would beat their heads on the railing of their cribs until they caused more brain damage and blinded themselves. You know, kids who bit off their lower lip. You know, severe. Back then, that was, we saw a lot of severe, severe, severe autism. And for the most part, it was created. So, you know, the, the relevance of that is if we can create it, we need to make sure we're not continuing to do things that perpetuate it and create bigger problems and identify we really need to do the specific things to reverse it and fix it. One, one population that gets dual diagnosed often is the Down syndrome population. So many Down syndrome children are also labeled as autistic. And the problem is if you slow down development in any child, you're slowing down the sensory development. They're getting stuck at levels and can do have the potential to become autistic. Right. It can develop. All right. Anything that you can develop, just like we talked earlier about working memory and developing working memory, if you can develop, you can change it. All right. So essentially, you know, the process with any kid on the spectrum is fixing those issues that are underdeveloped, fixing those things that the kids are stuck on and providing the necessary opportunities to stimulate that brain, use neuroplasticity and move them on. And the better job we do with that, the faster we move them on, and the better we do. We generally think of neuroplasticity as being, appropriately, the foundational thing that, that's, that moves all development, which is absolutely true. Unfortunately, the negative things we do also can trigger neuroplasticity. You know, for example, <clears throat> I can have a child with a learning disability and maybe he's a little overweight, he's not too good at sports. And a kid gets very few positive things said to him. Gets a lot of negative things, all right? So what happens with him, he comes, becomes very tuned in to anything that might be negative. 
and he perceives it as being negative. All right, if it's not glowingly positive, he perceives it as negative. And what happens with neuroplasticity in that child is his brain is sensitized to that and the world becomes negative. Okay. With kids on the spectrum, everything they do with debilitating sensory addictive behaviors is teaching the brain through neuroplasticity to want it more and do it better. You know, if you will, if you've got a child who does this, that's a pretty specific behavior. And if he does it through the day, that's a lot of frequency. And if he does it with intensity and he does it through the day, that's defining what triggers neuroplasticity, specific input with high frequency, intensity, and duration. That's tough to combat. So I wanna say foundationally, one of the things we have to do is redirect all those DSA, debilitating sensory addictive behaviors, because it is triggering neuroplasticity but it's triggering the wrong neuroplasticity and training and educating the brain to want and do more of it. One of the trends is more and more early diagnosis and also a trend to find more and more kids broken. Uh, First of all, I'm, I'm anti-label. Uh, I don't see labels as doing us a whole lot of good, particularly if it's a label that, you know, I mean, if, if you've got heart disease, that's not a bad label to get if you've got it because there's specific intervention that you can do to change that. A label that essentially implies you have limitations and categorizes you, but does not imply specific things that are gonna change tends to be harmful. Uh, you know, I, I'd be surprised if they're, they're not making fewer rocking chairs today than they used to, because people see rocking as a stim, all right? And gee, you're, you must be a little autistic, you know? You're rocking, all right? And if you will, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, Little children do these sensory things until they have enough function where they can do other things. And with those little kids, we just need to move their development along and they're gonna be absolutely fine. The last thing they need is to be stigmatized and labeled. You know, you have some sweet young couple, you know, have this little cute little four-year-old who is doing fine but, but, you know, maybe, you know, they watch their favorite show and they jump up and down and flap a little bit. They're excited. That's not inappropriate if you're four. And imagine that poor couple having somebody say, oh, you're, I think your kid's on the spectrum. I no longer have a normal child. I no longer have normal expectations for my child. I'm no longer gonna treat my child as being normal. That's not good. That's not good, all right? The, the world has just become so oversensitized and so in love with categorizing and labeling everyone. You know, in my lifetime, it's amazing seeing the, the difference there. You know, to tell an interesting story, back in the 80s, we had a chapter in an area of New Jersey that's one of the wealthiest areas in the country. 
And at that time, there were only about 3% of the school population nationally who were labeled as anything other than normal, only 3%. In this particular community, it was about 30%. And in this community, any child who did not test out two grade levels academically above placement got labeled as being neurologically impaired because they were not functioning what the other kids were. And gee, what did that do for that school district? Number one, it helped their placement stay high because those, all those kids who labeled didn't get count when they rated the school district and the level of function of kids. And it brought in extra funding to a school district that also already had more funding than they should have known what to do with, all right? So it become, became vested, schools became vested, systems became vested in labeling and categorizing more and more people, you know, which would have been fine if it really resulted in significant change with what was happening and improving it. But for the most part, it did just the opposite. You know, it used to be if Johnny had a bit of a reading problem, the perception of Johnny's normal, we've got to change how we're teaching Johnny so he overcomes his reading problem. Once Johnny became dyslexic, Oh, gee, Johnny can't read because he's dyslexic. Oh, dear. He's going to be dyslexic the rest of his life. Those perceptions are really, really important. We have a lot of families at homeschool. <laughs> In fact, the majority of our families homeschool. So they can, they, they can avoid labels, get rid of labels, we make them go away. One of the benefits of working with autism for 50 years and many, many thousands of children is I have seen what can be. And what can be is that we can take a severely involved autistic child and not just move them up the spectrum, but move them out of the spectrum. Right? The potential for normalcy the potential for a full, complete life is there. It's not easy, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of specific input. You know, anyone who tells you that producing significant change in anything is easy, is lying to you, all right? You know, the families we work with work hard. They work hard, they're dedicated to their kids, they're dedicated to the vision they have for their children and their potential. And if you will, I believe in the potential of every single child. I think the only limitations on that child are what we do, how we do it, and our lack of complete understanding of what to do. It would be impossible for me to have spent my life working with families and their children without becoming pretty darn passionate. And what makes that passion incredibly strong is I have seen so, so many children do what everyone said they could not do. And you don't have to do that but a few times, let alone hundreds of times and thousands of times to really learn you can do anything if you're doing the right stuff, you can produce change. You know, we work through the family. 
We work through the parents. We have parents bring in their kids and they've got hope to varying degrees because often the establishment has destroyed a lot of their hope. But when parents come in and have a vision of what that child was going to be when they were born, it has been eroded away. And you can help them create a new vision of what could be, what can be. And we can work together as a team to help make that be. It's incredible. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation. We now invite you to go to gemtrain.org and gain the additional guidance from this presenter that can help you fully grow and flourish as you gain the skills and confidence to help those you love on the autism spectrum.